We're in James chapter uh, 1, the last couple of verses of the chapter, verse uh, 26, 27, 28. I uh, hadn't finished this quite last week, so we'll start there again. Um, this is in the context, uh, again, if you follow in the outline or wherever you look at these things, this is responding to the word of little pinwheel thing that I had given you at the beginning of our study. This would be in that we've gone through testing some temptations. Now the second key item in the pinwheel is response to the word of God. James' desire, his goal, is that we be disciplined doers of the word, not just heedless hearers. And again, if you were here the last two weeks, that should be familiar to you. Uh, so James concludes this as he does with all of his uh, chapters in his little epistle, the epistle of James, with very practical application. Now, I want you to look in verse 26 and 27 particularly. Three times he uses the word religion or religious, either a noun or an adjective. Uh, translating a Greek word, threskeia, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but the reason that's important is the only time this is used in the Bible the word religion, or as an adjective religious, is not used any other time. So it, it raises kind of an interesting question. Why does James choose to use that word? Because for you and me in 2023, religious, a religious person, an adjective, or a person's religion, noun, is a very common term. We use that all the time. We even speak, for example, of the Christian religion. The Bible does not talk about it that way. You will find no place in the Bible where it speaks of the Jewish religion, Old Testament, or the Christian religion, New Testament. It doesn't use that term. So James is choosing a term that would not have been quite as familiar to them, that is his readers, as it is to you and me today. So why does he choose to use that term? Because the Greek term threskeia, religion, has a focus on external, the external things that you do. That's what James is interested in, isn't it? Because we saw that in the beginning of the book. We see it now in the second half of chapter 1. We're going to see it in the second part of chapter 2 uh, as we as we move into that. And our discussion much earlier when we compare Genesis, Galatians 3 and 4 with James chapter 2, 14 through 26. James is interested in what does the justified life look like? As I've said many times in explaining this book to you, James does not, unlike Paul, James does not explain how you get justified or the way we would talk about it today, how you get saved. He doesn't do that. James doesn't go over the gospel. James doesn't go over all of the details of his brother Jesus. He just assumes that he made that decision. So he's trying to describe what that justified life looks like. So therefore, to choose the term religious, or religion as a noun, he's focusing on, this is what we should see. So if you claim yourself to be religious, or claim to have the Christian religion, what should we see? What are the observable applicational activities that we should see. And we've read this, but he chooses three things. I'm going to read it. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, 
That person's religion is worthless. Religion is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James chooses, it's just so fascinating how he does this, James chooses three things, three aspects, three applicational dimensions of what the justified life looks like, what a religious life looks like, what a person who claims to be a Christian and has the outward religion, what it looks like. What's the first one? Does not bridle. Now, that you've you, you got to talk about this two more times in this epistle. What comes out of her mouth, what we say. But I think you all know this, because we talked a little bit about this last week. But you know what a bridle is, don't you? You know what a bridle does for a horse. It's how you, the owner of the horse or the rider of the horse, can control that horse. And once the horse is trained, and then you kind of make the horse do whatever you want it to do. So James chooses that as a figure of speech, a metaphor. If you do not control your tongue, you're deceiving yourself. And he uses that term that he likes to use, deceives your heart. And a person who can't control their tongue, their religion is worthless. That is a really strong term. So in this first verse, what I mean by that in the application section, verse 26, in that one verse, he uses it two times. Religious as an adjective and religion as a noun. And what he's saying to us is, if you can't control your tongue, if you can't control what you say, your religion is futile, fruitless, and useless. And that's what that Greek term that's translated by ESV as worthless means. Thank you, Ed, for coming close to me. I really appreciate somebody sitting close that's to me. That's too far away. <laughs> I feel like there are aliens on another planet. But anyway, so that's the first thing. And I, I'm pretty certain, I, maybe the guys online, but I look at you guys here in the room, there are a handful of you, that this is an issue that most of us, whether maybe not right now, but throughout your life, have struggled with this. Because you can hurt somebody. I used the example last week with Dr. Fred. You can hurt somebody by saying something that they will never forget. But at the same time, to control it, to use your tongue, to use your words as a way of affirming, encouraging, helping, nurturing, those things are equally as important. But James is talking on the negative aspect. If you can't control your tongue, don't say you are a Christian. Don't say you are manifesting the external aspects of what it means to be a Christian. I just think it's interesting that he chooses that. Because of all the things he could choose, that one is the most, well, maybe should not the most, but one of the most important to James, because he's going to bring it up two more times in this epistle. What we say, the words that we use. I know, uh, well, I, I won't illustrate anymore because we, we spent a little bit of time on that last week. The second illustration that he uses of what religion, the external, what does the justified life look like? He uses Old Testament words. He uses words out of the Old Covenant. Religion that is pure and undefiled. Those two words are words that are part of the Old Covenant, that are part of the Old Testament. A person that is, a, a Jewish person in the Old Testament that was pure and undefiled was a person 
that offered the sacrifices, walked in obedience with God, but also, and James is pulling this out of the Old Testament, cared for people in need. And in the ancient world, the two most important people that you would look at that are almost always in need were orphans and widows. Because in the ancient world, and it really you have to go to the middle of the 20th century to find any change of this, but in, in almost all of human history, there was, no, there was no safety net for people. There was no Social Security or Medicare or anything like that. And you have to get to the very late modern period, the 20th century, to see that. And, of course, the state starts to do this. But until the state started to do it, the churches of Jesus Christ cared for people. It was the churches of Jesus Christ that took care of orphans. It was Christ, the Christian church, and I can document that in my study of history. It was the Christian church that built the first orphanages for children that were orphaned by parents dying. It was the church that set up programs to help widows. As a matter of fact, in the pastoral epistles, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there was apparently in the church that Timothy was dealing with, which was at Ephesus, there was a program for widows. I mean, it was a program of the church, administered by the church. And Paul talks about that to Timothy. Because it was the church that sees people the way God sees people. And because they see people the way God sees people, they care for those people in need. The social agencies of caring for people for 2,000 years in history was the church of Jesus Christ. And James is saying this in 45 AD, is approximately when this was written, 12, 13 years after Jesus went back to the Father. The religion that God is interested in is a religion that cares for people that are in need. And in the ancient world, the best illustration of that were orphans, kids who lost their parents, and widows. And again, I, it's, a marvelous, it's a marvelous story in the history of the church, how the church organized itself. And today, now this is a broad stroke statement, but today most churches don't do that. Why? Because the state's taking it over. And because the state does it, why should we do it? Why should we care to help people? Now, I'm not saying churches don't, but it's a broad stroke statement. But for the most part, the Christian church isn't organized anymore to do these kinds of things. Largely because the state's taken it over in what we call today the welfare state. It's in Europe. It's in almost every country in the world has something like this. And they're almost all administered by the state. Wasn't that true in England to the church? Oh, absolutely. Provided. uh, Oh, yeah. Well, England was way ahead of the United States in that. England England started so much of this. I mean, you could the great Earl of Shaftesbury, who was one of my heroes. He was a contemporary of William Wilberforce. He organized in the parliament to end child labor. He organized in the parliament efforts to care for people, and it was done through and working with and supporting the church. Remember, the church in England is the state church, the Anglican church. And so in America, this comes much, much, much later. It's usually a product of the great revivals of American history. Can I ask you about Spurgeon, too? Spurgeon, Spurgeon. Spurgeon. 
Spurgeon set up in his, he served a long time at the Great Metropolitan Baptist Church in South London. I've been there a couple of times. Marvelous. It was bombed during World War II and had to be completely rebuilt. But when you when you see it, he set up 23 separate social agencies, orphanages, caring for widows, uh, schools, uh, all, all kind. Uh, we, they weren't hospitals; they were more like clinics, not full-blown hospitals. But he was he was the guy who took this seriously. He now he preached it. He was a great Puritan, a great Calvinist. But at the same time, he said, "We owe we owe the debt of Jesus Christ to others." Who are in physical need, and by and large, and he had very broad stroke statements. But by and large, the church is not as active in some of these areas as it used to be. It still is, but it's not. I mean, in, in my church, we have a benevolence organization, benevolence fund, and so on. But it, it doesn't all. It is kind of supplements a little bit of caring for people. That's not what James is saying here. Then the third. The third aspect of, quote, religion, close quote, is it's at the end of, of, of that verse, to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's an interesting way to put it, because, again, he's using the language of the law. He's using the language of the Old Testament to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's, that's a term that was associated with the law. And you would you would attain pure and undefiled and unstained by doing the sacrifices. Well, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, you present yourselves to the Lord as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. So that now you are his instrument, God's instrument in this world. And so the, the, the final thing he says is keep from being polluted. Keep from being polluted by the world. And the world there is cosmos, the world. James uses it that way. Jesus uses it that way. John and his gospel and his letters uses it that way. The world is that system that stands opposed to Jesus Christ over which Satan rules. The world is another metaphor for the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And so he says the religious person is the person who's not stained by the world system. You've made a separation as the Jew in the Old Testament was to make a separation from their polytheistic, animistic, pagan, immoral neighbors, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, etc., etc., in the New Covenant, you are to be separate from the, quote, world as well. And so James is talking about things, notice he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, verse 1 of chapter 1. He's using the language of the Old Testament, to explain to these Jewish believers, this is how you live now. This is what the justified life looks like. And it's it's a marvelous way in which, because James was Jewish, the brother of Jesus, was able to put the old and new covenants together to show that the new covenant has supplanted the old covenant, but elements of the old continue in the new because of the finished work of Jesus. He's fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the covenant. We're in a new covenant relationship. Of course, the operative power of the new covenant is indeed the Holy Spirit. And, and this is a process. I think sometimes Satan attacks us because we're not over there. We're not there. Well, it's a process, a journey of life that we get there. 
Don't we? I sure. mean, it's, yeah, we, it's not like, boy, you're 100%. Yeah. Well, as Woody always brings up, sanctification is a process. He <laughs> tells me that all the time. That's his favorite word. That's exactly it. But James is, and I don't want you to miss this, James is saying something that is important for you and me to say in the 21st century. My religion, if you want to use that term, again, the Bible only uses that term three times in these verses. It's the only time the Bible ever uses these terms. But anyway, if you want to use that term, then you would, I would hope, would want to do the same thing James does. My religion is going to be manifested by what I do because I love Jesus. And those two are the connecting points. And that's a challenge in the 21st century. And history shows how much of a challenge that really is. But the church has led the way in so many of these things. I've told you about this book a number of times. British historian named Tom Holland in 2019 wrote a book called Dominion. It's a big, thick book, but it's a marvelous book, worth the time to dig into it. But what he does is he shows how, and he is not a Christian, at least when he wrote the book he wasn't. There's some indication that he may have actually put faith in Christ. Anyway, marvelous historian, great historian. He's written a lot of wonderful books. What he does is he traces 2,000 years, how, how Christianity, this is the subtitle of the book, how Christianity transformed civilization. Transforms what? Transforms civilization. And what he does is he starts right with Jesus, and he just goes through several centuries. He just does a tremendous job. What James is talking about here, Christianity's impact on civilization has been immensely positive. And he cites education, health care, caring for people in need, as well as missionary activity, all of these things. Because Christianity is holistic. We're not just interested in saving people's souls. We're also interested in helping them live a abundant life. And that's why, and again, it's what Holland does. Hospitals, educational institutions, health clinics, all the kinds of things that are associated with quality of life issues. The church has been on the cutting edge of this stuff. In the early centuries of the church, first two centuries, uh, and I know you know this, but Rome Rome really set up these densely populated urban centers. Rome was the biggest one of them all, about a million people lived there. But when people in the ancient world live in densely populated areas, what's going to happen? They're going to get sick. You're going to have disease. Because sanitation wasn't a major, I mean, there was some sanitation, but you're going to have disease. And what you know they would call plagues would sweep through the cities. And in those times when disease was ravaging the city, the wealthy and most people would run for the hill. That's where that phrase comes from. They would go to the city, out, leave it, go out into the hills, run until the until the plague was over. Christians didn't. Christians stayed in the urban centers, cared for the sick, helped the people who were ill and dying, buried the people who had died. And, that, and as, as Holland says in his book, or others have, uh, Smith, a guy at University of Illinois, has written a book on this too, but my point is that they're saying that this made an impact on people. Why are you people not leaving? Why are you caring for people in need? Because we see people the way Jesus sees people. He died for them. 
They're going to live with him if they put their faith in him. We're going to care for them now. Because God is interested not only in the soul, God is interested in the body. It's so important he's going to resurrect. So that kind of thing was dramatic in drawing people to Christ. And that's what Tom Holland shows in that book. This is what James is talking about. Religion is not ritual. Religion is active serving other people. It's actively serving, not only to give them the gospel, which it is, absolutely, but it's also helping to care for people in need. And that's what James said. That's religion. But most people, I don't, I don't, I typically do not use the word religion because it has so many negative connotations to it. Because I don't want to put the Christian quote religion next to the quote Hindu religion or Buddhist religion because it's not. Christianity is a personal, intimate relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. Even the word Christianity is is. You have to pick the right definition anymore. It's a derogatory term sometimes well, in, in yeah. today's world. Yeah, well, it's framed through the culture war issue. Yeah. yeah. That's how people are through the culture war issue. That's yeah. not how, and you and I should not be saying our Christianity is just about culture war issues. No. That's not what it is. And if you're allowing people to define your faith in, in the terms of culture war issues, push back. I do. I push back on that. It's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. That is not what I represent. I have strong convictions in some of these areas, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about politics. That has nothing to do with my faith. Any how I vote has nothing to do, and for you to know how I vote is not a measure of my faith. As a matter of fact, I don't tell people how I vote. And that's really hard to do because every Christian today in its evangelical United States assumes you're going to be a Republican and assumes you're going to be for Trump. That's just an assumption. And if you're not, you mean you call yourself a Christian? You're not for Donald Trump? I'm not sure I see anywhere in the New Testament where it says that the tenet of my faith is how I vote politically. I feel very strong about that because I've seen so many people make Christianity into a Republican political party platform. That is not what Christianity is. You have to be very, very careful how, because you will not see in the New Testament that kind of language. It speaks of a relationship with Jesus that then is evidenced by how you live your life, which becomes a magnet for people to see, oh, you name the name of Christ, but it's reflected on how you live, not Mm -hmm. what news program you watch on cable TV. I'm, I'm getting off the subject, but it's his fault because he started it. <laughs> Let's move into chapter two, because these are inextricably linked now. Because James now uses another illustration of what pure and undefiled, quote, religion, close quote, looks like. And it's, it's interesting how he does this. My brothers and sisters, it's a gender-neutral term, so it means believers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Now, I'd like to start at the end of verse 1 and work our way back. Please note, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the full, and I think it would be right to call it this, that's the full title of Jesus. He's the Lord. Greek word is kurios. He's the Lord and sovereign of the universe. Jesus, Yeshua, means Savior. Christ, Christos, Hebrew is Messiah, means the anointed one of David, the Davidic anointed king. So that's the title of Jesus. It encompasses everything that he is and everything that he represents and has accomplished. He's the Lord, the sovereign Koryos in the universe. In the, in the ancient world, when this was written, they would say, Kaisar Koryos, Caesar is Lord. The church said, no, he's not. Jesus is Lord. He's, he's the Yeshua. He is the Savior. That ties into his title when he was born. Yeshua, the Emmanuel of God. Matthew chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel says this to Joseph. And then Christ, this is what the Jewish people were looking for the Christ, looking for the Messiah, the Davidic king, the Davidic Messiah. That's Jesus. But what I want you to notice is that James, again, he uses an Old Testament phrase. The Lord of glory. Yahweh Shekinah would be the Hebrew. He's using a Hebrew concept that every Jew, because when they thought of God's glory, what would they think of? The Shekinah glory that was always manifested over the Holy of Holies in the temple. And with idolatry, Ezekiel charts this, with the idolatry of Judah, as their idolatry became more and more pervasive, the glory of God departed from us. So what is he saying? The Shekinah of Yahweh is restored in Jesus. John says this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Jesus shows up full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God manifest. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He is the the effulgence, the, the representation of the glory of God manifest. On the Mount of Transfiguration, recorded for us most fully in Matthew 17, Jesus' glory is restored momentarily in Peter, James, and John's spirit. So James says, our Lord Jesus Christ, Kurios Yeshua Ashiach, is the Yahweh glory, Yahweh Shekinah. Now to an Old Testament person who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, now one of the Jews spread throughout the world because of persecution. For them to get that title, he's Yahweh Shekinah. He's the Lord of glory. Oh, I mean, that would be so marvelous for them. That's why James uses it. So men, what he's doing, and it's at the end of the verse, but he's dumping all this theology into the appeal of his command. If you represent Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Yahweh Shekinah, the Lord of glory, you will show no partiality. Now, partiality is kind of a neutral term for so much. In the United States of America, 
according to our Constitution, according to our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, for example, the Bill of Rights, which is attached the first 10 amendments to the Constitution as a condition uh, for the states to ratify the Constitution by 1789. We don't have partiality. All men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, pursuit, and happiness. We affirm the Ten Bill of Rights, which establish the absolute rights of citizenship that the government is supposed to guarantee. But yet we'd have a pest. Amendment after amendment after amendment, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, to abolish slavery, established absolute rights for all natural-born citizens of the United States, and affirmed the right of every citizen to vote in the Civil War. Because human beings are fallen. And sometimes government has to step in to make sure that you are affirming that you're not partial, making it criminal to not show partiality. So James says you should not have the government mandate to you that you should, because you follow Yahweh Shekinah, you should show no partiality. So words that would, we translate that term today in the 21st century, discrimination, prejudice, hate toward people just because they're not like us either racially, ethnically, or socioeconomically. Let me tell you a story. Quite a few years ago, I read a biography of Mahatma Gandhi. You know that name? Okay, very key individual in, in India gaining independence from the British Empire after World War II. Mahatma Gandhi was a devout, is, before he died, was a devout Hindu. But early in his life, he was trained, very, very intelligent, very smart. He was trained to be a lawyer. He read the law for, in England. That's how they, used, they talk about it in England. He read the law in England, and he read some of the law in South Africa before he was able to become a barrister. Again, that's the language that was used in the British Empire. He was in South Africa studying there, studying the law, and in, in the preceding two years, he had been wrestling with his Hinduism, which his parents had taught him, and the appeal of Christianity. He was reading the New Testament. He read the Sermon on the Mount, fullest account of that in Matthew six, seven, and eight, uh, Matthew five, six, and seven. And he said, "Why? Maybe Christianity. Maybe Christianity is the answer to my country's issues." Maybe Christianity, because if you, if I think you know a little bit about this, that even today, you know, 90 years later, they're still struggling in India with the caste system, C-A-S-T-E, the caste system. You, you know, it's like a rigid class system. It was very structured. And if you were born, the bottom rung was untouchable. If you're born an untouchable, you stay an untouchable. There wasn't a lot of upward mobility. But as he was reading this, he was reading, my, oh, my. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about everyone needing to hear this gospel. Everyone needing, everyone needing to show and demonstrate this love for people as God loves people. 
But he says, I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to go and I want to hear someone talk about this Jesus. I want to hear about this Jesus priest. Remember, he's in South Africa at this time. He had been doing some study and great barrister there in the British colony of South Africa. And he went into this Dutch Reformed church, which had been owned by Holland. England conquered it, so it's still pretty strong. And he walked in, and the usher stopped him and said, you sit over there in the dirt with your people. And Gandhi turned around and walked out. And this is what he said. Why should I become a Christian? They have their own caste system. And when I read that, years I read that book about 20 years ago. When I read that, I thought, what if that Christian church had taken James chapter 2, verse 1, seriously? Show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh Shekinah, the Lord of God. What if they would take, what would have happened? If Gandhi had championed independence of the British Empire as a Christian, that's kind of hypothesis. We cannot answer that question because it didn't happen that way. But then this isn't just some, oh, it sounds real good. James is asking us, take this seriously. In the church of Jesus Christ, there should be no discrimination. There should be no prejudice. There should be no hatred toward people of a definite, different ethnic, racial, or socioeconomic group. Because God sees people. Paul writes about this in Corinthians. James is going to talk. In God's perspective, there is no partiality. God shows no partiality. The gospel is for everyone. Rich and poor, black, red, yellow, white, everybody else. Of all the different ethnic varieties. Christianity is for everyone. The gospel, Jesus died for everyone. That's why there should be no prejudice in the church. That's really hard. The United States of America struggled throughout its history with this because throughout much of its history, it had the proposition that people that are black are subhuman. That's exactly what Thomas Jefferson wrote in his notes in Virginia, that blacks are subhuman. They're not like us whites. And, of course, the entire Nazi empire from 1933 until 1945 was built on the premise that the Jews are substandard human beings. And they, they, are, they are diluting the pure Aryan race. And the only way to solve that is kill them, which, of course, is what produced the horrible Holocaust. Now, I'm using extreme examples, but the church should have nothing to do with those things. So he uses an illustration, and that illustration applies a little bit to us, but it was quite instructive in the ancient world. Verse 2, so he illustrates it, an explanation. For if a man wearing a gold ring and flying clothing Gold rings, you know, I wear gold rings, my wedding band. I've worn it for 54 years because it's the covenant I made with my wife, Peggy. It's an illustration of that. 
and every woman looks at that and says, no, well, Jim already is married. That's this symbol. But in the ancient world, gold rings were ostentatious. That's a big word. You know what ostentatious? I love that word. Ostentatious demonstrations of your wealth. It was the way in which you showed everybody. And the, the greater the number of rings you had, the wealthier you were. So James is talking about somebody walks into the church with lots of gold rings on and fine clothing. And that, again, the, the translation of fine clothing, I mean, this is, they're decked out their best. They spent a fortune just how they adorn their body. Comes into the assembly. A word for assembly, there's synagogue. Remember, James is writing to Jews. That still, they called their gatherings. It's assemblies. And a poor man in shabby clothing. ESV translates it shabby. You could translate it dirty. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is clothing that, this is all this guy has. You would probably say he's wearing rags. Kind of like what Charles Dickens wrote when he wrote Oliver Twist or in Portions of David Copperfield or in Great Expectations. He's writing about the poverty-stricken people in Victorian England. He graphically wrote about that. And so James says, you have two types of people coming into your fellowship. The people are ostentatiously demonstrating their wealth. And the opposite, the poor who are so, they, they can't even afford basic clothing. They're wearing rags. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. That is exactly what happened to Mahatma Gandhi. Have you not then made distinctions? The Greek word is diakrino. We get our word discriminate from that. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We're jumping on the application of this when someone comes in that way, you are going to have you're going to have your attention. And I guess what you do at that point in time is you have to be disciplined enough to treat them as anybody else. That's their culture. That's where they come from. I mean, why would you treat them? Maybe I guess you would. Maybe in some ways different. But um, God looks upon the heart, and I guess we need to do that too. It's not easy sometimes, especially if if they're on the dirty rag side. I mean, we think, what are, you, what are you doing here? Are you clean? Are you infectious? Uh, you know, are you, where are you going to sit? Um, I think you do think about those things, but then probably you have to, as you're talking about, as God admires, admires us. Um, well, just, in, just now be intellectually and brutally honest with yourself. Don't answer these questions. But if someone is, you know, dresses really well. I mean, you you know, 
let's pretend they have a suit on, which people don't wear suits at church anymore, but they have a neat, neat three-foot piece suit. They drove up in a Rolls Royce, and they get out of their they get out of their car and walk in, strut into the church, and then you have another person who is let's pretend you're in the nineteen late nineteen sixties, you're in San Francisco at Haight Ashbury, and it's we call it quote a hippie close quote. They come into your church. The tendency you're going to have is to treat that wealthy person a lot differently than the hippie. Did any of you see the Jesus Revolution that movie that? Greg Lloyd put out. It was in the theaters. Awesome. Did it, okay, Rock, you, you saw it. It's a story of Chuck Smith. It's 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 really his biography. It's uh-huh. a fantastic movie. But Chuck, Chuck was pastoring a church of pretty affluent people and so on. And he, it's how he is transformed. He, Chuck Smith, is transformed by the Jesus Revolution. Because it's, these people are hippies. That was a, that was a revival. It, it, it was a revival in the 60s, early 70s. And it impacted, it spread throughout the United States, but it really impacted the West Coast. And Chuck Smith became a really prominent leader of that. And he was very important in Greg Laurie's life, too, earlier. But anyway, it, it, Greg Laurie, it's about his story, too. It's a major part of the movie. Well, anyway, I'm telling you, because that is exactly what was happening in these churches. These very affluent, very very upscale churches in, in Southern California, and all of a sudden hippies started coming. And Chuck Smith made the decision. These people, I'm, I'm really summarizing a lot. There's a lot that goes on. But anyway, Chuck Smith made the decision. I'm going to treat these people the way Christ wants me to treat them. And the church exploded. And he, Chuck was, he knew how to theologically keep the boundaries straight. He knew how to, to deal with some of the extremes but he kept the focus on the gospel. And it was part of one of the revivals in American history. And I'm saying that because, men, this, this challenges us as much as it challenged the church in the early first century. It challenges us in the 21st century. Yeah. How do we treat people? And why do we show partiality towards some? Why do we manifest prejudice? Why do we have the tendency at times to discriminate? And so James, is, this, this is an immense challenge in the early church. It's an immense challenge in the 21st century church 2,000 years later. And I don't care what anybody says, it is not easy to do this. It is not easy. And in that movie, again, you see people in the church, some of the leaders, really upset with Chuck Smith, and some of them left. If this is what you're going to do in our church, we're leaving. Some stayed. But it was just, it's its a challenge to, Lord, help me to see people the way you see them, not the way I see them. One of my, <clears throat> it was my, my boss, actually, but then another member of our church where I'm on staff, uh, they've been down to Tony Evans Church in yeah. in, uh, in Dallas. Uh, I studied her when I was in my, doing my theology degree. Tremendous leader. But when you go to his great church in Dallas, which is a massive church, it's largely an African-American church. But there are many non-African-Americans that go. But Tony's church is trying to practice this. 
the history of how the Deep South treated blacks will not influence how we, this is Tony speaking, treat whites today. If you want to come to our church, you're welcome. And they have an entire welcoming. They're very intentional about making people, whatever their racial or ethnic background, feel comfortable at church. Now, Tony's a, he's become a, he's a tremendous preacher, extremely, very, very smart guy. And his works, if you've ever read them, are deeply theological but eminently practical. He's trying to live this. And he's trying to show his community this is how we're supposed to live. Even if those rednecks and outside the major cities of Dallas still treat us as if we're slaves, we're not going to treat them that way. So what James is saying here is it makes it has made every century since Jesus went back to the Father uncomfortable. Because you naturally, instinctively have certain prejudices. And sometimes you have to ask the Lord to help you to deal with them. Amen. Yes. Now, I know this is getting way too convicting, so you want me to move on. We only have a few minutes left, so I'll quickly get off of this. No, I'm not, because James asks, in verses 5, 6, 7, James asks four, four rhetorical questions. Four questions that challenge you judge with evil thoughts. That's how he ends verse 4. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Rhetorical question number one. To contrast God's evaluation of people with your evaluation of people. First contrast. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So what's James doing? Look around. I'm thinking if some people argue, and it may not be incorrect, some people argue what, what the book of James is really, James is knitting together a whole bunch of sermons he preached. So let's pretend that's true. So if this was really a sermon, probably James says, look around. What do you see? In those early churches, what do you see? You would see a Roman centurion, and you would see a woman, and you would see a slave, and you would see a Gentile sitting next to a Jew, what would you see? You would see the diversity of the Roman Empire in one social gathering. Because God, God makes no distinction between the rich and the poor. He died for them all. He sent his son to die for them all. And they're all heirs to the kingdom. Look around. He would, James would say, look around. You see a lot of poor people here. A lot of, well, there's a lot of rich people here. Because in God's economy of things, there's no distinction between the two. There's a socioeconomic distinction. But in God, God only sees two groups of people in the human race. Those who are saved and those who are unsaved. That's the only thing, and Paul makes that clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. That's God's description. You're either saved or you're not saved. God makes no other distinction. 
And so James is saying, look around. Isn't that what you see? God doesn't discriminate against the poor. God doesn't show any partiality. You see poor and rich, Jew and Gentile, male and female. You see Roman soldiers. All on. What do you see? Second. He gets really practical in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. The rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they like the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James just, again, he's just, look around. You have shown dishonor and prejudice toward the poor. And to favor the rich, that's ridiculous because the rich ones, they oppress you. The rich ones drag you into court. And doing that, they blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called. Who, who is he referring to, the honorable name by which you're called? Who's he referring to there? Okay, obviously you're not hearing my question, so I'm going to repeat it. And he says in verse 7, are not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Who's the honorable name? What's he referring to? Who's he referring to there? Christians. You are favoring people who oppress you. You're favoring people who exploit you. You're favoring people who drag you into court. And they are the ones who slander Jesus. They're just the honorable name by which you're called. They're the ones who slander. James is just saying, good night, you people. How in the world could you possibly be so inconsistent, but also so foolish? Because the very people you're showing favoritism toward are the people who oppress, exploit, and drag you into war. And in doing so, they slander the name of Jesus. Because that is not what Jesus represents. James has a way of really getting under our skin. James has an in-your-face way of teaching truth. James has a way of taking a spiritual two-by-four and slamming it against the side of our head, doesn't he? Nobody agrees with me. Does anybody online agree with me? Okay. He's just, he's really challenges. You cannot read these seven verses and not feel a bit uncomfortable. Because I'm telling you, I was in leadership. I was 20 years in leadership at a, at a university. Five as vice president, 15 as president. And those last 15 years, I raised a lot of money for the school I led. And this was something I constantly faced. Because I would do a lot of meetings and so on with people, and they would give donations to the institution. But I also spent a lot of time with some very wealthy people in Omaha, names of people you would know. And I always said, Lord, I am not approaching these individuals with any prejudice. I am asking them to support something that's eternally significant. You touch their heart. And I would always struggle with that because... How do I treat somebody that's a billionaire versus someone that's a farmer in southeastern Kansas or southwestern Kansas, particularly where it's kind of drought-ridden all the time? That's where the dust bowl started. 
And yet, yet you always struggle with that. And you say, I'm here to represent Jesus. I'm here to represent what he's doing through our institution. It will be him stirring your hearts for what we're doing. But I really struggle with this. And I don't treat somebody who's very wealthy differently than I treat somebody that's not. James is challenging us. If you want a bottom line proposition, Jesus is challenging us to see people the way he sees people. There's no prejudice. There's no discrimination. There's no partiality. The Lord is impartial. He died for everyone. And the church, Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. At the cross, everyone's equal. That is a challenge. It's an immense challenge for us. Because quite frankly, and I don't think this is abstract for all of you, quite frankly, a lot of people are not very lovable. Matter of fact, a lot of people are extremely annoying. And a lot of people are, it's very, very easy to hate them. James is challenging the early church and challenging us 2,000 years later to see people the way God sees people. Would you let me conclude in a few minutes? Let's see if we can, I don't think we'll finish this, but we can get started. Verse 8. He's laid down the principle, no partiality. He's illustrated it, and he's challenged partiality with four rhetorical questions. Now, what he does, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, that's really interesting that he uses the phrase royal law. It's from the Greek word basileos, which means kingdom. It's basilikos. He's putting two words together. It's the law of the king. It's the law of the basileos. That's the Greek word. It's the law of the king. That's what you mean by the royal law. Okay, now let's step back. Who's the king? The Lord Jesus, isn't it? He's our king. He's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is his law. Okay. What is, James has talked about this earlier. He's going to talk about it coming up in the next chapter. Paul talked about it in Galatians. What's the royal law? Love one another. That's the royal law. Jesus said before he went back to the Father, I'm going to give you a new commandment. The commandment is love one another. And they will know you are my disciples because you love one another. So the royal law is the decree of our king. The basilokos, the royal law of our king. What is the royal law of our king? Love people. Love one another. And so James goes back into the code of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. He pulls it out. And says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus decreed before he went back to the Father is not any different than what is in the old covenant law. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the law. That's in Leviticus. That book where you have your devotions every morning. Then I'll bet nobody in this room or nobody online has ever read the entire book of Leviticus with total understanding and has real familiarity with everything that's in Leviticus. Because you got to read about how you make clothing, how you make food, uh, what the sound. Oh, yeah, that's it. And, but right in the middle of it, 19 verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. James says the real law is the law of the king in the universe. It has always been that way. And if you fulfill the royal law, I like how the ESV is translating this. You're doing well. It's a process word. You're in the process of getting there. Now, I've been doing a lot of preaching. This this isn't a teaching session. I've been more preaching today, but I, I don't know how else to go through this material. So I'm going to do one more thing, and then we're going to stop. And I want to start again next week with verse 8. We'll review it. But verse 9 says, but if you show partiality, it's that same word that we saw up in verse 1. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. See, partiality, prejudice, discrimination, those words that become the translation for discriminate, that's the antithesis of love. If the law says love your neighbors yourself and you show partiality and prejudice, that's the antithesis of that. That's what James is saying. The law stands, the law stands in judgment of what you're doing. And the, the, the Greek word that's translated transgressor, it's one of the three major words for sin in the New Testament, and one of those is translated transgressor as a noun of transgression. It's, it's okay, here you have the target. Here you have the clear teaching. It's laid out by the Lord. The transgressions you missed. Here's the target. You missed it. So a transgressor is you missed it. <laughs> You know what it you know what you're supposed to do. It's clear, it's not ambiguous, and you, you choose not to do it. You missed it. You're a transgressor. You've willfully and intentionally defied what God has declared you should do. So you're a transgressor. So what James is doing is he's saying, I, I want you as Jews, and so he writes to Jews in AD 45, 12 tribes scattered abroad. I want you to take this Old Testament principle and apply it because consistently this is how God is wants to look at people. Okay? I have four more things I want to say, but it's almost 10 of and I must quit. So I hope you are very uncomfortable as you leave class today. <laughs> I'm serious because the word of God is supposed to at times make us uncomfortable in the sense that it's showing I still have a ways to go with this. I'm not there yet. And every time I study this or teach something, oh my goodness, Lord, I don't want to teach this because I'm under the table of conviction. Actually, he does a little of that in here, though, James says, when he talks about the rich being ones that oppress you. and So he's judging them all, in a sense. But, but he's, 
yes, he is, but he's he's saying to look, you you are showing favoritism toward people who are actually sinning against you. Why are you doing that? That's kind of what he's doing. All right, man, I got I've got to quit. I've got another. We're gonna start lesson. next week at eight, or we're gonna start next week. Where do you want to pick up next week, Jim? Yeah, I'd like to pick up with verse eight again. I want to review that again, and, and, and there are about four things I want to say about 8 and 9, so we'll pick up with that next week, okay? I must pray here and get going. Father, thank you. This is this is a hard passage, uh, really starting with, with verse 26 of chapter 1, even, about religious religion. But Lord, it really kind of zeroes in on the things that are going on in our heart. Lord, you are our gracious God. You're a loving God. We are so grateful and we'll be eternally grateful that you sent Jesus to go to the cross and die for our sins, resurrecting him in power and glory. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. You sent us your Holy Spirit who dwells us and enables and empowers us. He's the sign of the new covenant, that energizing power. But, Lord, it's hard. It's hard to live the way you want us to live. We're all in process. We're growing. We're on that journey of becoming more and more like Christ. But how we look at people is one of the great, great stress points and tensions. It's a test. Help us to see people the way you see people, to love people, to help meet human needs when it's evident we have an opportunity to do so. But Lord, to be careful, to be wise. We just don't throw a lot of money at something. We want to be carefully wise in what we do. But at the same time, Lord, we want to see people as eternally significant, eternally of value to you, because that's why Jesus came. He died for everyone. So help us to deal with some of these things in our hearts, deal with some of these things that we could call prejudice. Help us to be men of strong faith who love you, and we're walking in obedience with you because we love you. We want to do what you want us to do. And we know you're going to enable us and empower us to do that. So dismiss us with your blessing. Take care of the guys in line there and here in our room. We trust them all to you in Christ's name. Amen.